It's that time. Your fix is here. College football is a year-round discussion with these two. Here's J.C. and Morgan. Mike Morgan of ESPN and J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports have you covered. Beginning right now. It is another installment of J.C. and Morgan. Hope everybody is doing well out there. He is J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports, BigSpur.com. I am Mike Morgan of ESPN and the SEC Network. We have been busy in this offseason. It's been another busy offseason. And uh, just a little housekeeping before we dive right in, JC. Uh, I want to thank everybody again. I mean, we probably don't do this enough. We, I, I, we don't take it for granted, but we've had terrific numbers for the last uh, handful of podcasts. And, of course, this is all going on without – and uh, games being played. So I think when we first started, we didn't do a whole lot during the off season. We just figured, well, we'll just wait till the fall and then we'll go ahead and do what we do. And then we realized, well, no, people want this all year round. They told us that such. And so um, really have had terrific response. Uh, the interviews with Bob Kessling, Andre Ware, um, uh, Barrett Salee last week, uh, uh, you folks have appreciated that. You've even liked the new open. Yeah, we got the, the dulcet tones of Gary David bringing us in each and every day on the uh, podcast. So uh, first off, before we get to our guest this week, JC, how are you, sir? Everything going well in the life of the Sherb? Yeah, doing great. Uh, a little bit busy this week. Had uh, some domestic things that, that, that have been happening with uh, middle school graduating, eighth grade dance, and of course, eighth graders. Uh, I have to remember back when I was in eighth grade, um, you know, I was always last minute doing things. And so I'm running to men's warehouse with a hangover on Sunday morning and trying to pick up a a suit. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's just, uh, (laughs) it's just one of those things, but only uh, we had video footage of that. that Yeah. Yeah. With with some theme music and rolling down the window. So you don't throw up, but anyway, no, it was, uh, uh, it's been eventful. It's certainly, uh, you know, just from my standpoint, I, I think it's uh, it's kind of cool to go back in time and, you know, think about when I was going to the eighth grade dance and, uh, you know, the girl sat on one side of the room, the boy sat on the other and a uh, little Bon Jovi at the end of that one. Never say goodbye. All right. Oh, so yeah, that was uh, that was the, the eighth grade dance song. Wow. Uh, that's good then. stuff. I don't think oh. our eighth grade had a dance. Well, then in high school it was lady in red. So that was, that was weird because <laughs> my, my date had on red, but uh, it was uh yeah. So I saw like, like a nice little scroll down memory lane. And then he had his graduation. We're remodeling the backyard. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on at the Casa de Sherbert. Well, I can't top that. Uh, no, no dance memories, but I will say this, the wife, uh, who of course is from Kentucky took me to Churchill Downs. So it wasn't the Derby, but it was my first ever trip to Churchill Downs, uh, won a couple of bets, lost a few bets, but, uh, had a good time and, uh, obviously a lot of history over there. So it's pretty cool to do that. A little break away from calling uh, college baseball games. And before you know it, Postseason will be here and uh, looking forward to calling another round of regionals and super regionals uh, for, for ESPN. All right. Um, as I mentioned, Bob Kessling joined us a couple of weeks ago, and we are going to continue to break down a lot of teams this year. We're inching closer and closer to media days. It's about a month and a half away. Uh, Bob helped break down Tennessee. We'll have other guests breaking down other schools, particularly in the Southeastern Conference. Thomas Goldcamp does terrific work over at uh, 
Swamp or Swamp247.com. I'm sure I screwed that up, but Thomas will set me straight. Uh, he's been around the, the program and covered it now for a while and is kind enough to uh, join us uh, this week and break things down, all, all Florida Gators. And then later on, we'll, we'll also take a crack at some things going on. We're not going to get deep into NIL this week, I promise. Uh, but we will talk about the scheduling models that are out there and not to mention some potential SEC playoff within the SEC talk. Uh, Thomas, how are you, sir? Appreciate you joining us. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Now, give a little bit of background because, you know, like every other SEC school out there, there are multiple media members that cover it. Um, you and JC, of course, work for the same uh, affiliation, 24-7 Sports. You guys both do great work with your uh, specific sites. But, uh, but tell everybody how you got into that, uh, what your, your ties are there, and how long you've been doing it. Yeah, so I, uh, I ended up going to the University of Florida, uh, kind of, you know, fell in love with the sports uh, concept, you know, of, of covering sports for a living and uh, sort of lucked my way into it. And so now I've been doing this with 24-7 sports for a decade. Uh, and it's been, it's been really interesting, really fun. Obviously, you know, you, you, you mentioned NIL. Uh, it seems like, you know, there's new things for us to learn every day. But, um, you know, I've been, been doing it for 10 years and, and certainly love it. And, and you and I had a talk before this. So, so, like, when you were a student there, you were there during, you know, championship time. Like, that, that, was, that was title country. That was uh, the Urban Meyer two national championships, the Billy Donovan two national championships. Baseball is always good at Florida, even though uh, they weren't winning a national championship until years later. But still, you were there during some pretty good years in Gainesville. And now you're – your career as a writer and, and being the guy for the website, you've seen a transformation because, first of all, it's impossible for any program to, to keep that up. We all know this. Right. Uh, but, but you can't tell your average fan that. I mean, once you give them a taste of the good life, as I always like to say, it doesn't matter what the program is. Fans always expect that the high watermark should be the norm. Well, the high watermark for Florida was winning national championships in two sports simultaneously. Obviously, that hasn't been the case here of late. Football program has had a lot of turnover with its football coaches. So how have you been able to to handle what I what I'm just guessing without uh, perusing all the message boards is a lot of, well, how come we're not doing what we did 10 years ago? Um, When I have the answer to that question, I'll certainly let you know. And I'm sure there's. (laughs) I'm sure there's a handful of Florida football coaches and, and even a basketball coach that would, uh, would also love to figure that out. I mean, it, look, it's a, it's a tough deal. Uh, the University of Florida certainly has high expectations, and, and you're not wrong. I mean, you know, fans have been sitting around now for, you know, a decade plus kind of wondering when it's going to get back or if it's going to get back. And, you know, when you have coaches that have done what Steve Spurrier did, you know, both at Florida and South Carolina, and then, you know, what Urban Meyer did at Florida and Billy Donovan did at Florida, you're, you're going to have some degree of expectation to get back there. I, I think the big question is, you know, can Florida do it? And if so, how? And, and I think that's something that, you know, not just these coaches are sort of grappling with these, these two new coaches that have come in for the Gators. But I think the entire administration is trying to figure out, OK, what, what did we do well? You know, was it just lightning in a bottle? How can we sort of replicate that? And, you know, I think. I don't know that there's a clear answer to that right now. You know, the, the, the Jim McElwain and the Will Muschamp era, those two, 
there, there was doubt in the air whether either one of those were going to be able to work. And, and obviously they did not. And, and I can't say that I was particularly shocked. The Dan Mullen hire, I would have made that hire. The Dan Mullen hire made all the sense in the world. I mean, he was an offensive coordinator there when they were a championship program. He's one of the best play callers. JC and I talk a lot on this podcast about the DNA of a program. Well, Florida's DNA is high octane offense, being able to throw the ball for a lot of yards. Uh, that goes all the way back to, to Ray Graves and Carlos Alvarez for crying out loud. And it, it, it just felt to me like that made all the sense in the world. And when Dan Mullen was 29 and five, there weren't a whole lot of people complaining. Then all of a sudden for the wheels to fall off in such rapid fashion, the way they did to go from beating Georgia and playing in the SEC championship game and giving Alabama a hell of a fight, playing in New Year's Day games three years in a row to a losing record and poof, uh, all kinds of questions about your recruiting and everything else and, and you're gone. Did that surprise you at all how quickly it went downhill? I think yes and no. Um, so, so, and I'll, I'll walk back a little bit even to the Jim McElwain era. I've seen it untangle very quickly at Florida and unravel very quickly for coaches. And, you know, back when, when Jim McElwain was sort of in year three leading into that Georgia week, I mean, there were long, long time Florida beat writers and columnists that even the week that he sort of made those death threat comments were like, he's not getting fired. And sure enough, the wheels start turning and you get enough momentum behind you in a fan base as big as Florida's. And he's gone. And so did I see Dan Mullen after going 29 and five? And like you said, you know, really being fairly competitive with Alabama in the SEC title game in 2020, and then coming within a failed two point conversion of possibly sending the game in, you know, the regular season last year to overtime to being fired. No, I, I wouldn't say I anticipated that. I will say, I think there were a lot of warning signs that, if Florida didn't break through and sort of, you know, win that championship, that they weren't in a position where it was going to be sustainable. And that goes back to recruiting. And that was evident, in my opinion, pretty much from day one, that, that Dan Mullen and his staff were not doing enough on the recruiting trail to make it long-term sustainable. And ultimately, I think that's why Florida made the decision to move on. Yeah, it's, it is inconceivable that that you can look at Florida uh, in some cases and say, well, there's three, four or five teams right now in the SEC that have more talent because I, I don't think that's, that's something that sits well with Florida fans. And it's kind of an anomaly based on what we've seen over the last 20, 30 years. But uh, you know, certainly they needed somebody that, that would come in with a recruiting, just a relentless recruiting mindset. That seems to be what Billy Napier has uh, and has always had, and and just based on since he's arrived on campus, uh, it, it looks like everything that they wanted in terms of recruiting is what they've gotten uh, so far from from Billy Napier. Would you agree? I think it's to be determined a little bit. Um, I, I think that you know they have Florida has put in a lot of positive infrastructure that was needed in terms of just rounding out the staffing department. I think they were a little bit understaffed under Dan Mullen. And I think some of it is, is just direction too, right? Like that, that recruiting direction and push all comes from the top. And it wasn't really there with Dan Mullen. I think Florida absolutely has that with Billy Napier now. 
it's still a learning curve though, right? The Florida job, when you take a step up from Louisiana to Florida, there's going to be a learning curve. And I don't think they are firing on all cylinders right now. Um, but Florida's in good position with a lot of really top-notch prospects. The question is going to be, can they, can they sort of finalize that sales pitch and really come through and, and sort of get these bigger fish in the boat? I, I think they've got the infrastructure. I'm not entirely sold right now on, on them finishing the deal, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's going to take time. I mean, uh, uh, you're not going to go right in there in this climate and just dominate recruiting. Uh, I would imagine that some of the momentum that needs to take place there will start with some of the results on the field. And, and I think this year going in, and we talk about this a lot in the Eastern Division this year, like, okay, everybody and their grandma is going to pick Georgia to win the East. Most people are going to pick Vanderbilt last in the East it's two through six that it's hard to really have a clue on this year in the Southeastern conference in the, in the Eastern division. And I think Florida is one of those wild cards. Like it's hard to know what you have. You show me a team that's coming off a lackluster year and I'll show you a team that needs better quarterback play and better defensive play. Uh, Let's look at Florida. What do you need? Well, you certainly need better quarterback play and, and you need better defensive play. Uh, the question will be now, do, do they get it? It's, it's going to be, I'm guessing it's going to be Richardson. I, I know there's, you know, a potential battle there uh, with the transfer from Ohio state, but assuming it's Richardson and a lot of people think Anthony Richardson is a star in the making and assuming you can't do anything worse on defense. Now that Grantham is gone, should there be reason for optimism in the air this year in Gainesville? I don't think there's any question. I, I will say, I think, you know, I've, been sort of pointing this out to, to fans for a couple months now. I think the the range of possible outcomes for Florida on the field this fall is pretty wide. Um, and the reason I say that is, yes, Anthony Richardson's going to be the guy. Fans have seen sort of the upper end of his talent range in, in the first two games last year in the game against LSU that he came in and, and nearly led them to a comeback. He, he clearly is a guy that has the tools to be in that Heisman conversation. He's got to stay healthy because Florida doesn't have anything behind him. Um, Jack Miller, the transfer from Ohio state wasn't super encouraging this spring. Um, so look, Florida's Florida season in a lot of ways is going to rest on whether or not Anthony Richardson can stay healthy. Um, but you know, to the defensive point. Yeah. I think, I think Florida's got a lot of talent there. There's a couple question marks, but you know, this is a team that, that could win six games or it could win nine games, maybe even 10 games if the right things happen. But it's definitely going to be a year where, you know, I think momentum is going to be very important to Florida. Where are the playmakers on this offense? Uh, you lose the top running backs. Or there's no Kyle Pitts like there was a couple of years ago. It's a generational tight end. Uh, you, you lose the top receiver to a, to a transfer. So, so who's helping who's helping Richardson out on offense to really make this offense go, no matter what the scheme looks like. I think it's going to have to come from the running backs. I think Florida has a fairly good stable there between Lorenzo Lingard, DeMarcus Bowman, and the Louisiana transfer Montrell Johnson that they brought in. I think that room is fine. I don't know yet that they have sort of a game breaker in that running back room, but that's a good enough group to be pretty productive in the sec. And they should be running behind a pretty competent offensive line that has uh, pretty close to 100 career starts returning. They're, they're a veteran group at this point. So I think the right coaching, Florida should have a pretty good ground game. 
at receiver, I'll be honest with you, I don't know right now. And that, you know, that's a spot where I, there's not been many years that I've covered Florida where there was that big of a question mark in terms of like, you're talking about who are the go-to playmakers? Who are the guys that are going to score touchdowns for you? I'm not sure. I think Justin Shorter is, uh, you know, a six, five type guy that, that has shown some, you know, Florida added a, a transfer from Arizona state receiver, Ricky Pearsall. I think he's a guy that steps into a starting role right away. But the reality is Florida, you know, is going to be relying on guys that it's recruited over the last two to three years to sort of have their breakthrough. And if they don't, you know, Florida's going to be a pretty one-dimensional team, in my opinion. You know, it's, you mentioned Bowman and Lineguard. You know, those are two kids coming out of high school, Thomas. I, I thought they were both elite. Uh, of course, one went to Miami and one went to Clemson, transferred back to Florida. Uh you know, third year for Bowman, I guess it's fifth year for Lineguard. Uh, what's been the holdup on those guys, do you think? Or are they just not as good as, uh, as maybe we thought? I think it's a couple things going on. One, I think Florida staff, the, the previous staff, was very, very tied into seniority and loyalty. And, and to their, in their defense, they had some pretty good running backs. I mean, Damian Pierce was an NFL draftee, uh, probably didn't get used enough. And then, you know, you had Malik Davis, who was a guy who could catch the ball out of the backfield. Naquan Wright can kind of do it all. So it's not like Florida wasn't getting production from the running backs. I think a lot of fans are, are sort of coming where, you know, from where you are. Of, of These guys were, you know, sort of the home run threats coming out of high school. Why haven't we seen them more? And that's a legitimate question. I, I think um, injury played a part in it. You know, Lorenzo Lingard had, had some knee issues coming out of Miami that took him some time to get over. Demarcus Bowman has been banged up, uh, was, was banged up again a little bit this spring. So I think for the most part, it's been lack of opportunity uh, and not necessarily anything that those guys are doing wrong. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if either of those guys can sort of show the five-star potential that a lot of people saw from them in high school. It, it's hard to really get a, a feel of what fans will be looking for on defense this year. You're talking about a defense that finished 10th in the SEC the last couple of years. And I get it. Grantham was the, the human pinata for the last <laughs> couple of years in Gator country, but, but he's gone now. You, you can't, you can't just pin it on. Well, he blitzed too much or he didn't do this. Right. Some of it has to do with talent and, and you lose uh, a shutdown corner to the NFL. There's, there's been some other uh, attrition there. What, what is to be expected out of this Florida defense this year? I think so. Florida, you know, as much as we talked about recruiting sort of being an issue from day one under Dan Mullen, they've recruited pretty well on paper defensively. And so I do think there's a lot of talent on this defense. Um, I, I think the biggest question for Florida in 2022 is going to be, can they stop the run? Because one of the recruiting deficiencies, the biggest, most glaring one on the roster from the Dan Mullen era was defensive tackle. And Florida's got, you know, former five-star Javon Dexter in the middle there. And I think he's going to be an all-SEC type. But they have nobody else there. And Florida was aggressive. I, I don't know if aggressive is the right word. They were active trying to land some defensive tackles from the transfer portal. They've struck out so far. So if Florida can't stop the run, I don't know that the defense will be a whole lot better. If they have one or two of those, you know, guys that have been around for two to three years at defensive tackles step up, along with Dexter, this could be a really, really good defense because you've got uh, an elite edge rusher in Brenton Cox. Um, there's, there's some young talent on the opposite edge. I, I think the secondary is going to be pretty good. I mean, you've, you've got Jason Marshall as a former five-star prospect, started last year. 
uh, got a lot of experience. You've got, you know, multi-year starters returning at safety. They've got some options at nickel. I think Florida can be really good. And I think, you know, to the, to the Grantham point, if Florida can simplify the scheme a little bit and just have guys playing at full speed, not questioning things, um, I think the potential is there. I just I worry about whether or not Florida can stop the run. It's kind of going to be an interesting way of, of jumping out of the gate because very often in a situation like this, a coach gets you know that, that so-called warm-up game to kind of get everybody on the same page and get some confidence going and get a little momentum. You don't have any of that. You got Utah week one. I mean, that's a terrific opponent right off the bat. How do you think uh, – how do you think the feeling, the vibe is going straight in uh, to the deep end of the pool on the schedule, taking on Utah in week one? I think fans are excited about it. I don't think there's any question. I, you know, I go back to the wide range of outcomes for Florida in 2022. It starts week one, because if you manage to come out and beat what is likely going to be a top 10 Utah team at home with a new coaching staff, all of a sudden you've got this wave of, of sort of buy-in energy, you know, the fans are excited. It takes on a whole different look than if you, you know, come out in game one with a new coach in the swamp and lose. I mean, it's just, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, that's a tough opponent for Florida and it doesn't get any easier. I mean, Kentucky week two, Tennessee week four. I mean, it's, it's as tough a start to a schedule as I can remember for a Florida coach in a long time. Um, I I think it's an opportunity and it's going to be interesting to see whether Florida can capitalize on it. Or, you know, they don't. And then where do they go from there? Since we're talking about schedule, I've got to ask. Uh, there's all this talk, and it's going to be reiterated in a week from now in Destin about the, this new scheduling model. Uh, it's pretty soon we're going to have a 16-team league, not a 14. And we're certainly not going to be looking at the same type of scheduling that we've had now, which seems to satisfy very few people. Um, you're never going to get a consensus, right? You're never going to get every coach – and every fan base and every administration to agree on the, on the answer. There's two that are out there. It's the keep eight games as the conference slate, have one permanent opponent, seven rotating. The one I think that's going to be more likely to go through is a nine-game conference slate, uh, three permanent opponents, and then the other six would rotate. There's a, a, an article in Sports Illustrated, Illustrated, Ross Dellinger has done a great job covering all this stuff here of late. Florida's three permanent opponents. You know Georgia's going to be one, no matter what the model is. And then the other two would be, according to Ross, just kind of just speculating here, South Carolina and Oklahoma. Uh, Any thoughts on that? Who do you think would be the top three if, in fact, that's the model that's implemented? You know, I I haven't read Ross's article. That's interesting. I haven't heard those three before. First off, I love the pod format. I think that's the way to go. I think with the scheduling, the way the SEC set it up, you know, after 2012, when Texas A&M and Missouri joined, you're just not getting to enough of these road venues. And it's one of the great parts about the SEC is the the passion of all of these fan bases, right? It's not just the big schools. I mean, all of these programs are fantastic programs. And to only visit them once every 12 years, I think is a travesty. So I'm all about sort of getting more of a rotation in there where, you know, not just the fans, but even the players can visit most of these SEC schools um, Georgia's got to be in Florida's pod. That's, that's definite. I, I think you'd like to have Tennessee in there, but the Tennessee Alabama rivalry is obviously very important to a lot of people. So I, I don't know how you balance it. Uh, you know, I, I think Oklahoma would be interesting. You know, Florida have 
has some some small history with Oklahoma and title game uh, scenario. So uh, it'd be fun. I don't know. I'm interested to see how it all shakes out. But I do think the league needs to get to a place where, you know, schools are visiting each other a lot more often than, than currently. I, I think Florida Florida fans would much rather have Auburn uh, than Oklahoma. Right. You know, that that that's a that's a, a matchup going back before we had divisions, some classic Florida Auburn games, and even after we had divisions, when when Auburn at, at one point was a regular on the Florida schedule, Oklahoma doesn't, I don't think, do much for Florida fans other than give you a, a heavyweight opponent every year. The problem is if you let's just say you exchanged Oklahoma for Auburn, well then Auburn people are going to be saying, well, wait a minute. You're going to have us play Alabama every year. That's an automatic. Yeah. Georgia. Georgia every year. That's an automatic. And Florida? Florida. Like, come on. So Auburn is going to raise holy hell if Florida is the third permanent opponent. So that's I think that's where Ross is coming from on this, is that they can't stack that many power programs against Auburn every year. So let's go ahead and get – they've got – he's got Auburn with Alabama, Georgia, Vanderbilt, right? Uh, somebody was going to get Vandy. And then he's got, as I mentioned, Florida uh, with Georgia, South Carolina. Like, okay, that that makes fair a fair amount of sense. And then he threw in Oklahoma, which I, I don't know if anybody at Florida would really want Oklahoma as the third one. But at some point, it's impossible to make all these pieces of the puzzle fit. So I, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to do it. And I tell you what, I hate. I'd hate to be in Birmingham and have to come up with this because no matter what you do, there's going to be some angry, angry fan bases. But yeah, it is what it is. If you got to come up with three, there's no perfect solution. Yeah, and Ross uh, in his article said there's, I guess, I guess there's seven schools because uh, the because Texas and Oklahoma aren't deciding right now. They're not. They're not part of the discussion, which I thought was unique because that may be the first time in the history of the University of Texas that they're not part of a dis or they're not making a decision for everybody right. else. So I'd imagine there's some some butt chap out in Austin, uh, but. Um, you know, I guess there's seven schools that, are, that they kind of have a line that they're the haves, and A&M's included that, Florida's included that. For some reason, Tennessee um, is not. They're in the second seven uh, with uh, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, South Carolina, Arkansas, you know, Vandy, whoever. And and the small, the quote-unquote smaller schools, and I don't know that they're smaller or whatever, the, the schools that haven't won a championship in a while, let's just call them that, or ever, uh, you know, they, they kind of – preferred the one seven model, uh, you know, with one permanent opponent because they only wanted to play eight conference games. Uh, and, and at those schools, you know, getting to a bowl game is important. Winning seven, eight games is important. Uh, a lot of them, some like Kentucky and South Carolina have ACC rivals that they play at the end of the year. Uh, but then they're playing, you know, cupcakes or, uh, you know, maybe occasional uh, big non-conference game and, and they're trying to get to a bowl and, and whatever. And, you know, I think the feeling is a nine-game schedule, as we saw during the pandemic here, could doom some of them to a losing season. I mean, you think about Kentucky alone, man. If Louisville's not good, they annually play the weakest non-conference schedule, in, in maybe in the history of the SEC since this expanded. I mean, Vandy will go take a random road trip to Colorado State. Uh-uh, Kentucky's like Max City. Uh, FBS team, FCS teams. I mean, it doesn't matter. And that's part of the formula up there. So they don't want to upset the apple cart. Um, and so the compromise Ross talked about would be, and this is why you see Oklahoma getting shoved in there with Florida, Mike, I think, uh, is that, okay, we'll go to nine games and the, the bottom seven will agree to this. 
Uh, and again, Tennessee's in the bottom seven for whatever reason. They weren't uh, in the 90s, but I guess after be- playing Alabama every year, they want some relief. Um, we'll go to nine, but you guys up there on the top, y- y'all are going to play each other twice. You know, you're going to have two games against each other and one with us, and then we're going to, you know, we're going to have a lot of Arkansas, Ole Miss, you know, South Carolina, Vanderbilt games down on this end to give us some relief. And, and, and he talked about that being the compromise. So, and, and then look, I, I'm intrigued by the one seven because I think it's kind of cool to have, you know, a team you play every year. And for Florida, that would be obviously the Georgia Bulldogs. Um, and then seven new teams uh, every other season, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that when you look at the SEC schedule, it gets easier to do it that way because they're not going to get rid of Texas, Oklahoma. They're not going to get rid of Florida, Georgia. The Iron Bowl is not going anywhere. The Egg Bowl is not going anywhere. And, and then you just kind of fill in the gaps, and you're like, well, LSU's probably going to play A&M, Arkansas, Missouri. Uh, and you just kind of go down the list there, and it's, it's kind of easy to come up with. Um, whereas the, there's going to be a lot of angst and consternation, I think, uh, about the pods and, and all that. And I have heard Auburn wants to play Florida, but – the problem is if you go to three permanents, the, the other two for Auburn are, like you said, Mike, going to be Georgia and the Alabama Crimson Tide. And, and, and that won't that won't be met too well, uh, I think, on the planes. Let me ask you guys one last one. Uh, this is for, for both of you. You both you both work for two four seven. You both uh, represent prominent websites uh, for, for specific fan bases. NIL, I, I promise we wouldn't get into NIL, but I, I did lie. We're gonna we're gonna at least touch on it in this sense and, and more of the macro than the micro. And, and and that is you guys now, you didn't sign up for like you didn't get into this wanting to follow uh, collectives and boosters and you know how schools are gonna generate enough money to to pay the most amount of players and to be the most attractive in recruiting in terms of who gets what and NIL deals. But now it's certainly a huge part of everything highlighted, of course, by the give and take, uh, the little brouhaha, the verbal brouhaha with Nick Saban and, and Jimbo Fisher. So, uh, Thomas, I'll start with you. I mean, how much of how much of your coverage and 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 following Florida and covering Florida recruiting, how much do you dig into that and feel obligated to, to have to cover some of that? I think a good bit, I mean, obviously it's so new that, um, you know, there's a certain responsibility that we probably have to help educate fans on, on just what's going on. I mean, I think I mentioned it earlier. Like I feel like I'm learning something new about NIL pretty much every day. Now the, the flip side is I don't know that there's a whole lot of interest from fans in hearing about NIL. Um, we did a podcast with the, the CEO of the Gator Collective uh, recently and I, I thought it was pretty informative, um, you know, decent content, kind of kind of walked fans through sort of, you know, the issues that these collectives are tackling. It was our worst viewed and listened to episode in mm-hmm. like six months. I mean, mm-hmm. it just didn't do anything. And so we've also seen that sort of in the, the coverage um, when we're writing about NIL on, on the website. And so I, for me, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to do what what drives revenue. And so it, there's been a little bit, in, in my opinion, of scaling back on the depth of NIL coverage. It's definitely an important topic. I think the dynamic with fans is going to be really interesting to see play out over the coming years because you definitely have 
uh, a not insignificant chunk of fans that, that don't really care. They, they, don't, they don't care if NIL is there. They don't care if the players are getting deals. They just don't want to hear about it all the time. Like that, that can't be the majority of the coverage. And I think so for us on the Florida site, we've settled into sort of, okay, we'll, we'll mention it, you know, in instances where it needs to be mentioned, but we're not going to devote, you know, 90% of our coverage and, and resources to every twist and turn in NIL. And that's sort of where we're at. JC, what about you? Well, um, it, you know, South Carolina is a little bit different. I, I think that fan base in general, you know, it, it, they don't have as many fans as, say, a Florida or, a, you know, a Tennessee or, you know, because you, you almost when you start looking at this stuff, you start looking at alumni bases and, and size of states and, you know, just to, you, you, people don't realize it, you know, the massive amounts of Texas fans there are out there just in numbers. Uh, and South Carolina's not a very small, uh, not a very big fan base. It's bigger than, I mean, believe it or not, it's bigger than Clemson's. It's bigger than, you know, some other schools you wouldn't think, but it's it's not huge. Um, and, and so trying to kind of, you know, I guess talk to the fan base about the changes that could come and keep them from panicking a bit about it. Um you know, it has been my challenge just dealing with South Carolina folks. I mean, South Carolina's recruiting is going pretty well. Shane Beamer's got a good staff. Uh, but, but at the same time, also pointing out, you know, when you lose a player now, you can't just go off on the staff, uh, depending on the circumstances. <laughs> you know, because if the money's that much better elsewhere, what, what do you want the coaches to do and, and sort of that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm not a – I'm not a teacher or a philosopher or anything like that, but I have had to get a little bit more educational and uh, philosophical because, you know, like Thomas pointed out, there, there is something new that comes up every day. Uh, it is changing. The state laws are changing. The state laws in South Carolina are changing. Uh, I know in Florida, you know, you, you want to kind of strike fear uh, into some opposing fan bases. Uh, when the second collective was announced uh, with a guy that just uh, – you know, put in what a million of his own money, Thomas. And, uh, and then people get confused because they're like, well, this guy just wrote a check for $12 million. How are we going to compete right. with that? Well, well, I mean, and, and nobody read the fact that, you know, that 12 million actually went to the Florida athletic association, which is kind of your normal run of the mill facilities and, and things like that. Only a million went in the collective, still a lot of money. Uh, and he's probably got some friends that could help him. Uh, but people just see those numbers and they get it so confused, you know, and, you know, the, they'll want to blame the athletic director. Well, in South Carolina right now, no athletic directors can touch this stuff. That's not going to be the case in July. So uh, it, it's almost like, you know, and I think a lot of fan bases are this way. Instead of saying, looking in the mirror, which is what it really is about right now and saying, okay, well, you know, let's get some guys together. Let's, let's, you know, if you got a thousand people given, you know, 20, $20 a month, that's $20,000 a month. Let's, let's, you know, let's go and, you know, try to contribute and, and do what we can for the first time in the history of college football, you can do what you can to head it off. Uh, it kind of becomes a blame game and a worry and a concern. And, you know, college football fans are very change resistant. Uh, and it's been a period of great change uh, for the last 20 years. Um, and I think there's some changes people embrace, like the playoff and, you know, league expansion to a certain extent. But then there's others, you know, when you're talking about, you know, because, Thomas, you and I have been in this business covering recruiting for a long time. 
you know, there's almost a generation of recruiting fans and they're used to it being a certain, a certain way. I mean, they were even thrown off by early signing and, and, and then the portal and, and all this stuff. They are creatures of habit. Believe me, change the, change the color on the message board. And you'll find out, <laughs> um, you know? And, and so now you're like saying, well, recruiting is that, and I wrote an article. I was like, forget everything you know about it because there are other factors that play beyond you know, the kind of traditional factors there have been. So it's, uh, it's been an experience, you know, uh, and, and I have certainly my opinions on the big picture of it and all that, but with South Carolina specifically, you know, it's just kind of been like, uh, Hey guys, you know, you're, you're not focusing on the right thing as fans. If you want to do something to change this, uh, you know, maybe kick in $10. And if you don't want to do that, if you're morally opposed, you know, uh, some of the players, they, they sell their own T-shirts, things like that. You know, go go buy it because that 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 number totally, you know, what it's going to be is, you know, Florida's NIL deals are, are worth $13 million total or whatever. South Carolina's are worth eight. And, you know, it's not necessarily a collective uh, riding around in the Tennessee orange blazers and, and on jets and signing guys for $8 million a year. Uh, that's going to make a difference. It's going to be that bigger number uh, when you're talking about an 85 man roster uh, and, and everybody can do something, but I, I think there's just a general confusion still about it. And then the fact that things keep changing with it. Um, and, and then the fact that fans, quite frankly, you know, the NCAA has been kind of the, the big boogeyman and the heavy and the sheriff in town. And uh, they're sort of powerless. It's kind of like uh, one of those old Westerns, you know, where the, the bandits come to town and take over and the sheriff really can't do anything about it anymore. You know, they're kind of, oh, well, well you're going to get in trouble with the sheriff. Well, no, you're not, because, uh, you know, that's not the law around here anymore. So that's uh, that, that was that's kind of the, the experience I've had with it, just dealing with fans specifically. Thomas, I would I would just put a bow on that subject and then I'll ask you one more before we let you run. And, and that is that I think Gator fans look at it. You're right. They don't want to get in the weeds on all the specifics of NIL and people are burnt out the subject. I, I get that. But if you ask the fans, are they interested in what it's going to take to return the top 10 recruiting classes like Urban Meyer was getting? And for, for a good portion of as much as Spurrier might've been a reluctant recruiter, he did have some pretty good recruiting classes during his time in Gainesville. Uh, and then they see the drop off under Dan Mullen and you realize that if we if we're not an active player in NIL, we're not getting back to top 10 recruiting classes. So from that standpoint, I would imagine even on, on just a broad uh, view a viewpoint of it, they want to know what the heck is going to be done. Like changing the coach is one thing, but what is going to be done to actually in this current climate of recruiting get back to top 10 classes in Gainesville? Yeah, and I think Florida's answer has pretty much been infrastructure, right? Build the the system that Alabama, that Georgia have, that Texas A&M seems to be getting in place to 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 do that. And NIL is definitely a huge part of that. I'm not I'm not trying to undersell the importance of it, but like everything, I think you know it's a factor in recruiting. It's not the only factor, and you know, coaches' ability to sell their vision is in my opinion, one of the biggest factors, I think, especially for a new coach that sort of prides himself on recruiting like Billy Napier, you better be able to sell, right? And facilities are a part, all that is a part of everything. There's no doubt that NIL is important. Um, You know, to JC's point, I do think, you know, if fans are feeling like, you know, they can 
sort of make an impact. Well, this is an easy way uh, to do that. Now, I think quantifying how that plays out and, you know, like if, if we give X million dollars, you know, does that bump us up to the number three class or the, you know, the number, are we top five? Like there's no, there's not going to be any good way to quantify that. So you're going to, you're going to continue to have fans on the other end of the spectrum. We're like, well, I'm not giving money. Like I don't, there's no, there's no tangible way for me to measure this. Um, I, I think it's just, it's a factor in recruiting. It needs to be one. I, I think right now it's, you know, it's probably the biggest factor, but it's going to level out at some point. And at the end of the day, the, the guys that are the best salesmen are going to continue to to reap the most rewards. I think. Wrapping up with Thomas Goldpamp, uh, Goldcamp again, the website is swamp 24 seven does a great job covering Florida. Um, I know you're not in the prognostication business, but what do you make of realistic expectations for 2022 Florida football? Again, we talked about everybody's going to pick Georgia one. Everybody's going to pick Vandy seven, two through six. Uh, you could throw into a bag and, and I'm not sure if you'd have uh if you'd be upset with any of them really thinking that your odds were that much greater than somebody else you would have picked in that bunch, where do you think Florida finishes? What's a realistic record? I, I don't think Florida's a clear number two, if that, that helps. I mean, like you're saying, I think two to six, I mean, look, Kentucky's gotten better. South Carolina with Shane Beamer, I think is, is on a really good track. Tennessee getting better, got a good quarterback. I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough sled for Florida in, in 2022. And, and I go back to, I think the range of outcomes for Florida is very wide. If Anthony Richardson gets hurt, this team might struggle to win six games. And on the flip side, if, you know, he realizes his potential and Florida stays healthy in a few key spots, they could win, you know, they could win nine. I, I, I think it'd be a stretch for Florida to get to 10 wins with the schedule. Uh, I, I tend to think nine is sort of the capped upside. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's just going to be a year where Florida – you're going to have to watch them week to week to see sort of where the mindset is. You know, if they come out and beat Utah as a team, we're talking about probably that nine, 10 win range. And if not, you know, I mean, it's, it's a tough league, Florida, Florida's is here. They're going to be an interesting team this fall. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. You'll have plenty of interesting things to talk about on the website uh, Thomas, keep up the great work. Really appreciate you uh, taking out the time and we'll talk to you down the road. I'm sure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on guys. You got it. All right. Thanks, Thomas. Just as your State Farm agent combines good neighbor service with surprisingly great rates, you can combine your home, auto, life, or small business insurance with Tony Pope's State Farm Insurance today. And guess what you'll get? That's right, even more good neighbor service with surprisingly great rates. In fact, Tony Pope State Farm is your go-to agent anywhere in South Carolina, North Carolina, or Georgia for the service you deserve at the price you want. So try combining your home, life, auto, and or small business insurance today. Tony Pope State Farm has been in business for more than 30 years and can handle anything you need in the tri-state area. Once again, Tony Pope State Farm will help you mix and match perfectly. Call 843-851-2222 or visit TonyPope.com today. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So uh, thanks again to Thomas uh, talking to Florida. We have Bob Kessling talking Tennessee. Certainly we have uh, some other guests uh, talking about a number of SEC schools here coming up in the uh, coming weeks, along with some other guests as well. Uh, JC, we, we, we touched on scheduling last podcast. We'll get deeper into it this one in that the, the two models that are out there, I think has everybody intrigued. Like if you want to get SEC fans like really uh, fired up about something, 
you touch their schedule. That's like you're in their house now. Like you just you just came into my house. I didn't really invite you, and you you're you're moving the furniture. Like that's not cool. So this is a very people get comfortable with what they have in their schedule, and most people are not completely happy with their schedule. But if you tweak it, they might become really unhappy and fired up about it. Uh, the nine conference games. Look, I've said this for years. Coaches are going to find many coaches, not Nick Saban per se, but many of the others. What do I always talk about? How do you look at things as if you're a coach? Path of least resistance, right? What's what's going to prevent me from getting fired uh, the longest amount of time? Because every one of these coaches almost inevitably does get fired. So going from eight to nine, what does that do to help my job security? Zero. That's the way a lot of coaches look at it. Fans, TV execs, uh, Conference commissioners alike, like they all look at eight to nine as a no brainer. And I think that's where we're going to be headed. But it's it, the reason why there's a sticking point, And you, you, again, you go back to that Ross article and there's definitely a sticking point. That's because I guarantee you there are coaches either vis-a-vis their ADs saying you make sure you let them know eight is the number or they even might be outspoken themselves uh, kind of behind the scenes, not publicly saying eight is the number, but everybody else wants nine. I think we're headed to nine. I have no inside scoop on that. And if we do head to nine, then that three, six model, whether it's some sort of pods or whatever, three permanent opponents and, and six rotating seems to be the, the, the formula that would, would, would uh, stand the test of time. The question then becomes, as we talked about with our last guest, how do you figure out who those three are going to be? Because once you get past that first one, there's a whole lot of debate. I know, Mike, and that's why I think I almost like the 1-7. I mean, the SEC is tough enough. I mean, you can look down the road at some of these games in the non-conference that have been scheduled. I mean, you know, Georgia – uh, to their credit, I mean, they, they play Georgia Tech every year. And right now, that's kind of a give. Uh, unfortunately, for the for the Jackets, it's, uh, hmm. it's, a, it's a gimme game. But Georgia started beefing up their schedule recently. I thought they were crazy. I was like, you're insane. Um, in 2028, uh, their four non-conference games are at Texas. Of course, that will be a conference game. Uh, Florida A&M, Florida State, and Georgia Tech. <laughs> um, so you're going to take away that Florida A&M game, replace it with an SEC game. Um, theoretically, uh, let me try to find one with that. Cause there's one year where the Texas is not. Okay. How about this one? 2030, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio state and Georgia tech, and then North Carolina A&T, but the North Carolina A&T game will go away. Uh, most likely, or you're essentially replacing that with another league game. So you're telling me Georgia and by 2030, Georgia Tech may be good again. <laughs> They're going to play Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia Tech and nine SEC games. Um, and, and that's just not the direction a lot of the league was going. They're beefing it up, but but they still kind of thought eight league games. And, and, and that's been the tradition in this league for a long, long time is eight conference games. And, and everybody else has gone to nine or whatever. It's been like, well, tough. You know, um, and, and the criticism, I think, from a TV standpoint has been, you know, SoCon Saturday and all that. And that's been kind of tough and, and legit criticism. But, you know, besides Kentucky, obviously, teams are beefing up the schedule. Um, 
and so one seven one and seven to me uh is super intriguing because your schedule is just fresh every single season um and look florida uh, alabama sorry alabama i'm sorry auburn and georgia may not play every year right and and that's sad but we just went through a season in 2020 where we had a lot of long-standing games snapped uh it comes right back the next year and you rotate like that and and that's why you know i i lean toward that now i know mike you being a tv guy (laughs) and you having a better idea of this stuff yeah I, i think we're heading down to straight down the path to nine games pretty quickly and so uh that would be my thing and that's that's a little bit harder to figure out than the one seven because you know one seven's easy. You know, you got Florida, Georgia, you got I mean they, and, and see, I think TV would dictate this because because at some point you, you may go, Well, you know, do you play Florida and Georgia or do you play Georgia and this team? Because Georgia's got a lot of rivals, or or would Florida rather play LSU or no, it's nah, you know, Florida, Georgia. Th- those games that CBS always gets right away, that would be Florida, Georgia, except LSU Bell. Because you can't cancel the Iron Bowl. No, you know, Florida, Georgia, the Iron Bowl. No, they're going to play the Egg Bowl, which is an underrated as heck rivalry. Um, that's coming. You know, Texas, Oklahoma is going to be played. That's a big money game every single year for TV. People drool. The SEC's drooling to have that game as a conference game. So right now, yes, two, four, six, eight. That's half the league. You know, you kind of think Tennessee will say, "Hey, we'll take that Vanderbilt game every year," right? <laughs> there are in-state rivals, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, so there's 10, you know, and that leaves, you know, Arkansas, Missouri, which the SEC is trying to kind of push as a quote unquote rival. So there's 12. Uh, and so that basically leaves you with Kentucky, you know, and South Carolina and uh, Texas A&M and LSU, which is, was a rivalry back in the seventies and eighties. And then they didn't play. And now they play Thanksgiving weekend. So about the only one of those permanent opponents that would not be kind of a tr- traditional matchup would be Kentucky and South Carolina. And then the forced rivalry with Arkansas and Mizzou. So, you know, that's set. And then everybody just flips every year. The the hidden um, it's not hidden per se, but it, the two are linked and I don't think you can, really break down what people want without knowing the answer to this. If we have a 12 team playoff, I think the, the schools are more passionate about playing a harder conference slate, meaning nine games. So if you lose an extra game uh, because you, your, your schedule is presumably more difficult. uh, Well, that's okay. I still got a shot at the playoff. So I don't feel like I'm being penalized. But if you stay with a four-team playoff, then I get it. I, I mean, I understand why they don't want to go to nine because it, it's so often you talk about strength of schedule, strength of schedule. But if you're two games behind everybody else, you're not getting in the four-team playoff. Uh, it, it's nearly impossible to get in with two losses into a four-team playoff. But if you go to 12, well, now that changes things. Now you can stub your toe in an extra conference game, but your, your season or your quest for – a trip to the college football playoff is not dead and buried. And we, we kind of assume it's going to go to 12, uh, but we're not positive. And then Greg Sankey, again, I'll, I'll continue with my, uh, my five card draw poker analogy. And I realize this is not 
you know, the, uh, it coincides with the according to Hoyle poker rules uh, book. But if you had the five families, which we all know control college football, right? it's not the NCAA, it's not Mark Emerit, it's, it's, it's the five power five conference commissioners. Uh, and apparently some of those decided as well as even group five, because you needed a unanimous vote to break this deal early, decided, well, the heck with you, Greg Sankey, we're, we're not going to grant you 12. And some said eight. Some said, we're just going to stay at four. And now here's Greg Sankey with the four aces waiting for that fifth card. So no matter what that fifth card is, he's going to have, the SEC is going to have the best hand. So, you, you know, you can do what you can to piss the man off. Like, you're not going to win. <laughs> he's holding the best hand regardless. So if you just decide that you're going to, now that he opened up and said, I'll consider playoff expansion, even though we don't need it in the SEC, uh, then now you're going to go back on 12 after he and Bowlesby and Swarbick spent all that valuable time coming up with, to me, about as perfect a formula as you can have for a 12-team playoff. Well, now the talk is, hey, maybe we could just have our own 14 playoff within the SEC. And who the heck is not going to buy into all of that? I mean, the ratings, the revenues, everything, the relevance uh, at college football playoff without the SEC is not a college football playoff, as we know. And a college football playoff within the SEC is extremely – it's the one conference that could pull this off, that, that it, would, it would be a, a ratings grabber, a money maker. Uh, it would be not just talked about within the conference but nationally. So you've got that out there which is fascinating in its own right. And then then how does that affect the scheduling? So they're all tied into one another. And because we have no clarity on the playoff as of right now, I don't know how clear it's going to be on the other two steps that we do with the scheduling. And then, oh, by the way, just to throw in another monkey wrench, Texas and Oklahoma are not slated to join the league till 2025. Now I happen to believe that's going to happen early. I think 2024 is, is the magical year that happens. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I just don't believe the Big 12 is can continue to have their uh, recently divorced spouse living in the same house uh, and trying to, to make that work. So uh, <laughs> assuming they, they get in the league uh, early and we, we have that thing down pat, now you got to have the, what, how many playoff teams down pat and then the scheduling. So I'm curious th- which comes first. Does all that get resolved? Are we going to have a scheduling change for 2023? We're going to determine what this new model is before the two teams even come in. I don't know. Uh, there's a little bit, little bit of me that's kind of overwhelmed by all of it. But man, th- these are some big issues that need to be resolved uh, in the next year or two. There's no question, Mike, and, and it's, it's just interesting, and it. Uh... You know, because because there even without Texas and Oklahoma coming into the league, there was a a swell of support. You know, from from schools. Dan Mullen pointed it out when Florida played Mississippi State a couple of years ago. When I think it was the first year of Florida, he's like, "This is the first time we played Mississippi State in how long?" And he's like, "That's not fair to the kids." You know, and and a, a long time ago, you know, Florida picked LSU, Tennessee picked Bama, Auburn picked Georgia. Um, you know, that kind of thing uh, as far as the permanent opponents went, and then they slotted everybody else. Um, well, as time's going, time's going on, and you know this from, from covering Florida at LSU in recent years, 
I don't think they care if they play each other or not anymore. <laughs> you know, in fact, when AM came in the league, they tried to get out of it. Um, I, I think while the, the third Saturday in October certainly is tradition and, and that that rivalry has gone back and forth over the years. I think at this point, Tennessee's fine with switching to an every other year model with Bama. Yes. Uh, if not now, even less. <laughs> Auburn, Auburn and Georgia definitely want to play, but, but you know, you ask Auburn fans, would they rather play Georgia or they'd rather play uh, the Tide? They're, going to, they're not going to give up. Well, yeah, of course. Um, and, and so I think even before Texas and Oklahoma, there was a, a, a sort of a groundswell to, to, to say, hey, let, let, let's put a little variety. And I'll give you a South Carolina example just because – you know, uh, it is what it is. We, we don't realize this, too, and we'll, we'll get into – we can talk about this over the summer more with bowls and how to spice those up a little bit. You know, I started thinking about it. I was like, man, it, it's been like – we don't we, we not realize this. It's been like almost 30 years where every year an SEC team goes to the Outback Bowl and every year a team goes to the Citrus Bowl and every year that – and, and I think when you go through that cycle of time, that gets old. So we're going on 30 years now with the two divisions with very little change. And so South Carolina plays Ole Miss in 2018. Gamecocks are averages grits. Uh, Ole Miss has a losing record. Uh, but the last time they've been out there was 09. South Carolina brought like 7,000 fans, which is a big contingent to go halfway across the country. Uh you know, whereas they weren't, they didn't even bring that many to Georgia the next year because uh, visiting crowds just aren't what they used to be. But if you give fans kind of a, a little bit of a variety uh, and a little bit of, uh, oh, we need to go here because we're not going to be here in four years and, and all that, uh, you know, I, I think it makes it more interesting than just the same old, same old. And, and then, of course, you know, you're always looking for discussion in the offseason like we are and, and put folks in SEC football and certainly are. And, man, can you imagine, you know, that schedule flips and all of a sudden, because this will happen, Mike, uh, either your six or your seven rotating teams, all of a sudden you go in the next year and they're the top seven teams in the league. Or an Alabama, God forbid, gets the bottom seven <laughs> or bottom six and everybody's like, see, it's biased. It's biased, man. Um, you know, the only unfortunate thing, too, about it that, that I think – and another reason why I think three is good. I believe Texas, and we have a, we have a loyal listener that's a Texas fan. So here you go. We're going to talk about Texas. Uh, and he asked me all the time and I, and I feel bad because we should talk about Texas a lot more. I believe Texas and Texas A&M need to play every single year. And uh, I think it the seems South, like a no brainer. I think the Southeastern conference needs to say, no, you're playing. Yeah. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this thing. We don't like each other. I, and, uh, and I get it, and uh, you know, in that rivalry, everybody's got, you know, a big a big hat and a bunch of cattle, right? <laughs> but uh, their their everyday run of the mill Aggie and Longhorn fans deserve better than the pettiness that has happened with that. Um, and, and I know there's some diehards on each side. Well, we don't need to play them, you know. I, I think, hey, now you're in the same conference. Uh, you guys, if it's a three permanent opponent thing, because again, Texas isn't going to give up. They're, they're not going to give up Texas OU. But uh, I think the Aggies and Horns need to go back to playing on Thanksgiving night, just like they used to. And so I, 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 I mean, look, man, that rivalry is featured in a movie, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. There's a song about it. In a mus- it's a musical, for God's sake, with Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. It's actually wow, really good. I haven't heard that movie in uh... – 
what was that 84 that that Whoa, came out way 80s you know yeah uh, that's... and the aggies uh aggies won and they go to the chicken ranch. i mean anyway people can watch it but but i mean, <laughs> I mean how, how do you how is it college football without that rivalry i mean you know and i used to i mean i mean yeah i love the egg bowl being on thanksgiving and all that i love thanksgiving games but Man, oh man, Texas and Texas A&M. Yeah, those two schools are so different <clears throat> culturally, and uh, and it is a rivalry down at the core. But it, it's also two huge, passionate fan bases. That I mean, just the I just I hated it when it uh, when it ended. I thought there was a lot of pettiness that happened, and uh, you know, may, probably on both sides. And uh, I believe that. Um, that the SEC, if it's three permanent opponents, they need to make them play. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. Um, and by the way, a lot of people just assume, well, they have to go to nine. That'll mean uh, more money from TV. The TV, the TV deals are already written. So whether it's eight or nine, uh, the, the the conferences, the, the networks rather, do not have to put more in the pot. Now they could always renegotiate and that might be part of the deal, but technically from what I understand and from what this article talks about amongst others is that the same, the same is true, whether you go to eight or nine, uh, there's not going to be Oh, Well, now we got to give you an extra hundred million a year. That's, that's not the case. That's um, if you've seen that or heard that that's incorrect according to the terms of the contract, but obviously you know, there, there's more at stake than, than just that. So I think we're eventually going to get to nine. Uh, I think eventually we're going to get to an expanded playoff. I, I know Oklahoma and Texas are going to be in the league. I don't know if a conference playoff within the conference, um, that's going to be, that's going to be one of the big talking points next week in Destin. I'm not sure exactly how that would work, but again, people will be in anything like that, uh, a final four within the SEC. That's, that's going to bring eyeballs. That's going to bring interest. There's uh there's no question about it. Well, yeah, look, I mean, if they're going to do that, I mean, then, then you need to go. I think that the idea then is to, to trash the three, six or one seven and go with pods uh, and then try to figure out a way for everybody to play everybody. You know, well, can't you have both? Basis. Can't you have you can pods and the three six? Like what, you... what, yeah, a lot of people mistaken it. If you have three permanent opponents, it's pods anyway, but it's not. You know, a pod would be like you pay, you know, like you and like Florida, I mean, Florida, like say Florida, Georgia, Vanderbilt, and Kentucky were in the same pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Florida would play Georgia, Vanderbilt, Kentucky, Georgia play Florida, Kentucky, but you know, and that it would go on and on. Like everybody play everybody, it'd be like a miniature division. You're going to have a semifinal and a final for the SEC playoffs and then play that off and then send your winner to the, the big playoff or whatever, which I think is very intriguing. You know, you, you'd, you'd almost rather go to pods because you'd, you'd have kind of a variety of teams making that final four. So someone, one of my members on the Big Spur actually said, you know, in the West you need to play for with the two Western-ish pods, you'd play for the, the Bear Bryant Trophy Um of course, Texas people want to make it the Daryl Royal Trophy, right? Of course. <laughs> I, I, I think we're going to go with Bear Bryant, though, since he coached at A&M and Alabama. Uh, and, and then on the Eastern, you have the Steve Spurrier Trophy, you know, the Spurrier Trophy uh, in the East, um, or the Spurrier Dooley Trophy or something like that. So, you know, 
that would be great. And then the winners go to Atlanta. You know, maybe one's in Orlando, one's in Dallas. Winners go to Atlanta, and then you, you move on. The other thing I saw speculated on would be an eight-team SEC playoff. Uh, and then everybody telling everybody else in, in the playoff deal when the contract expires to go do your own thing and then negotiate for an AFC, NFC style Super Bowl like it was back in the day before the merger. You remember that, Mike? Oh, yeah. Two, they were two separate leagues. Mm-hmm. One, NFC played off, AFC played off, and they played in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I think that would be the ultimate middle finger because I'm not so sure, Mike, that the SEC side of that bracket. And I think at that point, if that did happen, you're probably looking at them adding two to four more programs at the end of the day. Uh, I, I'm not so sure that that wouldn't get higher ratings and be a little more dramatic than uh, if the rest of college football played hmm. off on the other side. Uh, but that would be, that would be, I think, the ultimate middle finger. And That uh, is a big middle finger. Greg that, Sankey taking That is a huge saying, middle finger. Okay, well, you could – because, you know, at, at this point, there's no – there's no real governance. I mean, conferences can do, like you said, the five families can do whatever they want. Well, and you've got you've already got three of those five families that form their little alliance, uh, which right? Which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Which is which is silly. It's it, it and I get it. It's kind of a voting block. Uh, what it truly accomplished was nothing. I, I think some people from other uh, conferences kind of flex their muscle, like, "Oh yeah, well, how do you like me now? We've teamed up." You know, it's like like something out of the WWE back in the day. Um, but it really, it, 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 it's full of sound and fury. It, it signifies very little and not much has changed in the power structure. The SEC just trumps everything. And if you wanted to add another person in that caliber, it's the Big Ten. It's not even close. The SEC and Big Ten, what they say carries more weight than those other three combined. Or for that matter, if you want to throw in the group five, what those two carries more weight than the other eight combined uh, in terms of the the conference commissioners and the, and the leagues as a whole, those two move the meter. Those two are the most lucrative. Those two have the best TV situations. Those two have the, the best footprint in terms of fan bases. It's not even close. So the PAC 12 can eliminate divisions and that's a story for a day. And then everybody just shrugs their shoulders. Like who cares? So did the mountain West. Who cares? Uh, tell me what the big Ten's doing. Tell me what the sec is doing. Cause those are the two leagues that truly move the needle on college football and where we're heading and everything you said is possible. I, you know, we used to do a segment on this podcast, little war games analogy, which I can't help, but notice has been uh, copied from um, uh, by other people, which, you know, I always say that's the biggest form of flattery, but DEFCON five is the safest, right? And so the missiles, they're dead and buried and not dead, but they're buried and they're covered and no one's even near the key, the keys to the launch code. Uh, DEFCON 1 is, holy, whoop, we're near yep. we're on the brink of World War Three. Well, that's one of those where it's almost to me like, okay, right now we're on DEFCON uh, 4. But if you keep poking the bear in the zoo, okay, and if you keep making this difficult on the playoff front and every other front, we can go ahead and go to DEFCON 1. We can point those missiles right at you and say, fine. We'll go ahead and have our own playoff. And if you want to do your own other thing, then we'll play the winner and kind of like what you're talking about, which again happened before we're born, but we're both historians of sorts. And so we know it used to be the AFL versus the NFL and the winner of the AFL would meet the winner of the NFL. 
in what they deem the Super Bowl. And now, of course, the AFL is just the AFC. Uh, I think that's possible and it's fun to talk about. I don't think we're going to get to that point. I mean, I, I just think cooler heads uh, and more logical heads with those other commissioners and those other conferences will say, look, we may not like the way things are dictated by the SEC and to a lesser extent, the Big Ten. But we're not going to cut off our nose to spite our face. So we, we've got to go ahead and play ball here and, and let's go back to the bargaining table and, and let's let's try to do this right instead of just trying to make a power play and, you know, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. We didn't concede to your wishes, so how do you like that? And we're going to make you wait that this playoff out. It's going to be four teams now for another four years. And I, I think at some point uh, – more logical thinking takes precedent here. And we do get to the 12 team playoff. We do have the same 10 conferences that we've had, uh, you know, and the SEC can just focus on making the SEC its very best without having to completely change the sport as we know it. Uh, that's what I think is going to happen. Everything's on the table. I mean, Look, Greg Sankey started off SEC Media Days last year, and I can't remember the exact words, so I'm not trying to quote here, but I'm paraphrasing. Like, this is a new era in college athletics. And at the time, he was talking primarily about NIL and the transfer portal and everything else that, uh, again, people are tired of hearing about, but you can't ignore it. Now, the, the, the new era in college athletics could be the complete infrastructure of how we determine champions can be radically changed because we are on the precipice of the precipice of something has got to give here. So we're, we're on DEFCON four now. If, if, if certain people don't play nice, it could get to like DEFCON two. And before you know it, it's like, get ready to launch the codes. Um, or give me the launch codes. Give me the launch codes. Yeah. Give me the launch codes. What's the guy in war games that I piss on a spark plug. If I thought it'd do something, that's like one of my favorite uh, quotes in that movie. Go rent it folks. If if you're, (laughs) if you're under the age of 30 and you have no idea what we're talking about, like when I was, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, the Godfather was made before you and I were born, but we've we've all seen it. Right. And we all can quote it and we know it. Uh, Jaws was made when I was a baby. So was Rocky. But, uh, but when I was a kid, I wanted to, I wanted the, the cooler stuff was what the older people got to experience. I didn't want to watch cartoon uh, movies when I was 12. I wanted to watch R rated sophisticated movies. And I wanted to watch movies that my parents saw. I don't know if we've gotten away from that or not, but uh, trust me, war games, it's, it's a two and a half star movie, but it's, it's kind of fun to watch and you'll get the whole death con reference. All right. I'm out of references for this podcast, JC. Might be time to eat. I am too, my friend. Yeah, that'll do it. I'm curious to see what happens in Destin, though. And uh, yeah, I kind of got the the marbles going around in the head a little bit about that. Uh, You know, because I was thinking SEC only playoff. I was thinking that 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 NFL style thing. But uh, having if everybody else wants to stay at four. uh, You could just tell everybody else that that's fine. And then, you know the money and the interest and all that with an, an SEC playing all four teams, man, I think <laughs> that'd be something else, right? Yeah. You know, one versus four, two versus three kind of deal or four pod winners playing. And, you know, that, uh, 
that helps give more teams in the, you know, because the, the idea of the 12 team league if the SEC is you want more teams that have a path to win their way to a national title. And, sure. you know, that gives instead of two, uh, that, that, and really in some years only one, because if, if, if there was an upset, you know, that other team wouldn't have gotten in the playoff, mm-hmm. but, uh, sort of gives you four teams to kind of try to get there. Right. So, uh, I, uh, you know, the only issue would be if, uh, let's say you did have a team that got hot at the end with two or three losses. Uh, let's say Alabama somehow stubs his toe and loses two games and then loses, but they're still top four in the league and then they get hot and they beat everybody. And then you got a three loss Alabama team and the playoff committee goes, no, we're going to put this, you know, undefeated Wake Forest team in over you. <laughs> Nothing against Wake Forest, but uh, that would be the only downside for the SEC is if you did have an upset, which could happen. I remember uh, two years ago, games. two years ago, there was a lot of uh, concern, like, what, what are we going to do with Florida? Remember Florida beats Georgia mm-hmm. to go to the SEC championship game, but they blew it against LSU. It's the infamous Shoegate game. Yep. Uh, and, and they really – didn't have um, the normal, you know, resume that if you won the SEC championship game, you're a lock to go to the 14 playoff. So there was a little bit of sweating going on had that Florida team won, right? So I, I wonder, uh, you know, I, I wonder with this, the scenarios that we're talking about, you know, how much that comes into play. I, I look, I think, I think at the end of the day we're on the precipice of some major change, but I don't think it's going to be that major. I, I really don't. And I think the, as much as you and I love uh, the Southeastern conference and ties to the league and everything else, I don't want to see the rest of college football, just kind of obliterated in, in a, into a, 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 you know, yeah. kind of a mercy hold, like, okay, uncle, uncle, we realize we, we just screwed ourselves. Like, I don't want to see that happen. I, I don't think that's good for the sport. I, I love, uh, I, I love games featuring different conferences and different parts of the country being relevant again. I mean, I don't know if I like everything that's going on at Southern Cal right now, but I love the thought about Southern Cal being relevant. Uh, I love the fact that Michigan was relevant last year. You know, I, I, I like the fact that, Every now and then we've got a team that comes out of nowhere that actually poses uh, uh, a threat to be a player. I like the, I think the Cincinnati story is a good one or was a good one. We'll see if they can keep it up. They just lost a bunch of guys to the draft. So I, I don't want it to get to where we're – in a lot of ways, it's already become a regional sport. I don't want to lower the uh, – or make that scope even, even more diminished than what it already is. Yeah, I'm with you there too. I like uh... – I like the other teams being involved. I'll, I'll also say this, I, you know, I, 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 with regards to the other teams, you know, poo-pooing all over the daggum, um, you know, 12-team playoff. I, I thought it was very petty. And uh, for the life of me, if you're the Pac-12 and you haven't had access, uh, I, I have no idea why, why you would just, you know, unless, unless you just continue to, you know, follow the uh, Pied Piper of the Big Ten uh right down the, the, his merry little road, you know, hmm. uh, to a blame. I mean, it's one thing with Jim Delaney was the, the uh, commissioner there. It's another with the guy they got now. I mean, he's just, I think we've established he's awful. So, you know, it, it's, uh, if you're the Pac-12, and I like the new Pac-12 commissioner, I really think that, 
you know, he's kind of an out of the box. He's an out of the box thinker. He's not a college football guy, but, uh, you know, he knows, I I think he knows some stuff. And and I think if you're that league, you're like, well, why in the world did we even, why are we against that since, you know, we haven't been able to get in. And I know all the group of five leagues are for it because, you know, that model actually favors them. It gives them a chance to get more than one. Sure. It it makes, it makes no sense to have, nay votes on this yeah no. from, from the other leagues but but that's 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 where we are right now exactly. all right tell you where else we're where we are right now we're out of time uh, our thanks again to thomas Goldcamp of uh, swamp 24 7 for joining us we've got some more uh, entertaining guests coming up here in the coming weeks both on a national basis and on specific team basis uh to get you ready for the upcoming season of course destin going on next week as well unfortunately jc will not be JC and I will not be on the beaches of Destin uh, for all of that, but we'll be there in, in spirit. JC, enjoy it as always. Have a terrific weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, Mike. Thanks, and a great episode, and we'll talk soon. See you, folks.